3.30 this morning, I was awake and praying, and I was way more interested and excited about what I was praying about than what I was going to preach about, so I just at 2.30, I got up and I rewrote an entire sermon, and, and I haven't been asleep since, so here we go. I am excited to be with you this morning. Okay. 1803. The United States is the, the 13 original colonies, and we'd added a few other states. And then in 1803, President Jefferson bought the Louisiana Purchase and sent Lewis and Clark out to explore it. Everybody with me? We doubled the size of our country by purchasing that Louisiana Purchase from France. And Lewis and Clark went out. They went uh, on the Missouri River, across Missouri, up through Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, and into Montana to map out where that river went to meet the Indian tribes that lived out there and make contact with them in the name of the U.S. government and, and to map and to identify animals and plants that hadn't been um, known to science before and this unexplored territory. There had been a few fur trappers, Frenchmen from northern Canada that had gone out there before, but they were the expedition. And then when they got to Montana, to the Rocky Mountains, they snuck across what was then known as Oregon, although the United States was not part of the United States. It was claimed by Russia and Great Britain, and the United States wanted to make a claim on it, and so they sent Lewis and Clark across Oregon so that we could make a claim on, on this land. But Oregon Territory, notice it's all of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, some of Montana and Wyoming as we know them today. But at that time, it was just all Oregon country. Lewis and Clark crossed the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana and northern Idaho. They came to the Clearwater River which is what you're driving along if you go up Highway 12 uh, toward Missoula. And on their, about, on their way down through uh, the Clearwater River, they met the Nez Perce tribe, where the Nez Perce Reservation is today, just above Lewiston and Clarkston. I wonder how those towns got their names. Uh, the Nez Perce were friendly. They could have killed Lewis and Clark and their whole group and stole all their muskets and cannons, and they'd have been the most well-armed Native Americans in all of North America. But they didn't. They fed them, actually saved their lives because they were starving after having come through the mountains. And there, the clear water runs into the snake at Lewiston. They followed the snake over here to what we now say is Wallula and Tri-Cities. They got on the Columbia and all the way out to the mouth of the Columbia where they spent one winter and then they went back and told everybody what they'd found. But they didn't stay. They didn't build a fort. There was no trading post. There was no... But it, they weren't the first... Americans to come out to Oregon. British ships and American ships and Russian ships had all come in the mouth of the Columbia and sailed up as far as Celilo Falls, which is the furthest you could get, in a ship. And Captain Hood, which was a British sea captain, he named the mountain after himself. There had been people map and make contact with the tribes who lived on the coast earlier than Lewis and Clark, but Lewis and Clark are the first Americans to come by land and and then in 1810, John Jacob Astor, who was a businessman in New York, uh, the richest man in the world at the time, John Jacob Astor hired a group of fur trappers and uh, frontiersmen led by a guy named Wilson Price Hunt to go to the Oregon coast, build a trading post fort. But they did not follow the route that Lewis and Clark had taken because Lewis and Clark went way up into North Dakota and Montana following the Missouri River. It was way out of the way and it took way too much time. So they decided to follow the Platte River, which goes across Nebraska, more, much more straight west. If you've driven across Wyoming and Nebraska on I-80, then you know what the Platte River is like. Eventually, this route became the Oregon Trail. 
But they went across Nebraska and into Wyoming. They crossed the Rocky Mountains in a place called South Pass in Wyoming where you don't have to cross any mountains or canyons. You just stroll up an easy slope and down the other side, and you get your canoe in the Snake River, and they came across southern Idaho. Of course, it wasn't called Idaho at the time, but uh, they're meeting the Bannock and the Shoshone and the Nez Perce, and, and they're canoeing down the Snake River, and they get to where we would say is Farewell Bend today, Huntington. You with me? And they just keep following the river north because they know, oh, we're on the river where Lewis and Clark ended up. This has to be the same river because they could measure from the stars and kind of know their latitude and longitude. And we're close. And so they just follow the Snake River north out of Farewell Bend and the aptly named Hell's Canyon in late August. And it's 110 degrees. And if you've been down to Oxbow, Copperfield, Hell's Canyon Dam, you know that before you know the dams were there, the, the reservoirs, it's just a creek running through sheer rock precipices. They spent five and a half weeks trying to get through. They're like, it, we know, we're just, we're so close. We know Lewis and Clark came down the Clearwater River and into this one, and it can't be very far north. And it wasn't. It's like, what? 50 miles, maybe, if that. And, but they could not get through. They ate all their ponies but one because they ran out of food. They had to save one because they had a pregnant woman with them. One of the French fur trappers had brought his wife along, and she was pregnant, and they couldn't have her walking. So they ate all their ponies but one, and they're starving, and it's hot. And finally, after weeks of trying to find a, a side canyon that you can get up, and you, you can't go up into the Seven Devils in Idaho, and you can't go up into Wallowa County, uh, on the Oregon side, it's just, it's just impossible. There's nowhere to go. Finally, he called it off and he said, we have to go backwards. And they went back to what is now Farewell Bend and they came up the Burnt River through past Weatherby and Pleasant Valley and into what we would call Baker Valley, Powder Valley. Yes? But that wasted so much time that now it's winter. And on New Year's Eve, at what is about North Powder right now, Mrs. Dorian uh, at 10 below zero in a blizzard, gives birth to a baby under a buffalo robe. They put a, a buffalo skin on the ground, and they covered her with one, and she gave birth by herself while it's snowing hard. And all the men the next morning get up and pack their bags and leave. Like, we cannot stay here. We will all die. And so they leave, she and her husband and the baby, at what we would say is North Powder, and they come up to the top of this hill up here in between Lad Canyon and Hot Lake, and they look down toward Hot Lake, and they see smoke. We're saved. Somebody's down there. There's a fire. They go down. There's six Shoshone Indians camped at Hot Lake. These are the first Americans, the first uh, non-native people to be in our valley. January 1st, New Year's Day, 1811. And the Shoshones have dogs that they're willing to trade so that the men can eat. And so they camp at Hot Lake and eat dog, uh, New Year's Day feast, and they wait one day for Mr. Dorian and his wife and baby. The day after, she gets to rest one day, and he puts, her on, he puts her on the pony, and they take off. They join the party at Hot Lake, and the Shoshone Indians tell them, yes, in this amount of snow, uh, probably be three days over these mountains, and you will reach the big water, meaning the Columbia. Three or four days journey up and over, roughly where the interstate goes down to the Umatilla. The baby died at three days old and is buried somewhere roughly around Meacham, an unmarked grave. But everyone survived the blizzard in the winter and they 
made new canoes, and they sailed out, and they built a fort at the end of the river, which is now Astoria. Yes. John Jacob Astor is the man that paid for the expedition. It's his trading fort. So they named it Astoria. Okay. So uh, those of you who are thinking, I didn't come for a history lesson, um, be patient with me. And some of you are eating this up. So that's 1811. Astoria, Fort Astoria is built. But still, there's just fur trappers, mountain men, adventurers. But there's no town. There's no government. The Hudson's Bay Company, they have Fort Vancouver. Bet you can't guess where that's at. Fort Vancouver on the north side of the Columbia River at the mouth of the Willamette. It's not a military fort, it's a trapper fort where the native people would come to buy supplies and trade in their furs and and things for knives and mirrors and guns and food and so on. So again, it's not just what we call Oregon today, it's all of Oregon. Territory meaning Washington, Idaho, included all of British Columbia. The boundaries of Oregon, as it was known then, were very fuzzy. Mexico controlled California and Nevada, but that line wasn't drawn on a map anywhere yet. So we knew that Oregon was north of California, and the Russians claimed Alaska, and as of yet, the British and Americans weren't um, going to challenge them for that, so Alaska belonged to the Russians. Um, but everything in between, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, that was all the Oregon country, the Oregon territory. Then in 1829, so I just I jumped 18 years on you, okay? In 1829, a missionary sent a report back to the United States from the Sandwich Islands. Anybody know where the Sandwich Islands are? It's Hawaii. The Hawaiians always called it Hawaii, but uh, the English called it the Sandwich Islands. Nobody wants to go on vacation and a honeymoon in a Sandwich Islands. But the ships that would go out to Hawaii would come from the east coast of the U.S., they'd go all the way down around South America, and they'd come back, and they would go to the Oregon coast, and then they would go out to Hawaii. And on the Oregon coast, with, among the tribes that were living there, there was an outbreak of disease that was killing everybody. It was, they were absolutely decimating the tribes on the Oregon coast. And so a message was delivered back to the people of America that said that the Indians in the, in the Oregon coast are dying. There's some sickness there that nobody understands, but they are suffering, and they are in terrible shape, and they need help. So a word of alarm went out to America that there were people who needed help, needed taken care of in 1829. And then combined with that, two years later, 1831, four Nez Perce Indians from northern Idaho walked 3,000 miles to St. Louis to meet General William Clark, who they had met 25 years ago when he came through their territory. And they came because he was the agent for Indian Affairs. He was a general in the U.S. Army. By this time, a much older man. He's 60. He was the Indian's best friend ever, maybe besides David Brainerd. William Clark was a great man. Lewis didn't live very long after the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, he committed suicide just a couple years later. But Clark lived to be an old man, natural life. And Clark had red hair, and the Indians called him the red-headed chief. Well, the Nez Perce walked 3,000 miles to meet the red-headed chief in St. Louis, and they said, quote, we want to know the true way of worshiping the great spirit, unquote. And they said, we want a, I quote, we want a copy of his book of directions. And, quote, how to conduct ourselves in order to enjoy his favor. 
And another quote, we want to be received into the country where the great spirit resides and to live with him forever. Unquote. Amen. Amen. Right on. You don't learn that in your high school history textbooks. The Nez Perce asked for Christian missionaries to come to Oregon, which was Idaho for them. Word got published by a Wyandotte preacher. The Wyandots are a Huron people from north slope of Lake Ontario in Canada. So he's a Native American preacher. His name is William Walker. He published the story in New York in a religious magazine of some sort that the people from Oregon, the native tribes, were asking for missionaries to come. And the Nez Perce did. They invited him. He said he called for missionaries to go to Oregon, which was outside of the United States, remember, to go to Oregon to bring the gospel. Well, in 1830s in the New York was the Second Great Awakening. This is when people are having camp meetings outdoors, and they're getting slain in the spirit, and speaking in tongues, and there was healings and miracles, and just general wild Pentecostalness going on all over for 10 or 15 years, mostly in New York, but all over the United States, the Second Great Awakening at this very time. I'm sure that's not an accident. Well, the Methodists, who I told you about a couple weeks ago, we talked about Christmas carols. I told you about John Wesley and Charles Wesley, who had gotten with the Moravians. Remember the Moravians? 24-7 prayer for like a hundred and something years, and two of them even sold themselves into slavery so that they could go be missionaries amongst the plantation slaves. All right, so the Wesley brothers had started the Methodist church, and this is they had inherited the spirit of the Moravians, and the Methodists were on fire for Jesus in 1830s New York. And so there, when, the, when the message came out from a Native American preacher in Canada, there's Native people in need, there's a disease going on that they need help, and they're asking for missionaries to come. There were some people that answered, and a Canadian man named Jason Lee, there'll be a picture of him there, answered the call. He and his nephew, Daniel Lee, hired two other guys to go with him, and they, they rode horses and walked all the way from New York to Oregon. They were led by a fur trapper as far as Fort Hall, which is in southeast Idaho, and then the four of them had to come on themselves how to find their way to Fort Vancouver. When they got to Fort Vancouver, they were going to turn north into what was now Washington. And when they got to Fort Vancouver, the fur trappers and traders there told them, no, it's too, it's too dangerous. You need to go south. You need to stay on the Willamette River. So they turned south and they went down the Willamette River 60 miles to what is today Kaiser-Salem area. At the time, it was called Chemeketa, and they settled at Willamette Mission. This is this Oregon State Park now, where they built their cabin at a place called Mission Bottom in 1833. It was 60 miles back to their supplies that they could buy at a fort until the trading base was built at Shampooey. It's a state park now, too, outside of Newburgh. Mr. Uh, Lee and his nephew and these other two men are all preachers. They're not farmers. They're not loggers. They're not... Uh, cabin builders, and they have to build a cabin and plant a field. Jason Lee said, never have men worked so hard to accomplish so little. <laughs> they got there in the summer, and by January, all they had was the walls on the cabin up. They had no roof. No roof in a Western Oregon winter. They'd come to share the gospel and help sick Indians, but, but they couldn't even get a house built. And it was a, it was a big mess. Uh, they were really over 
worked because they had to build their own stuff and plant their own food because you can't just go to the grocery store. If you don't plant food now, you don't have it later, right? I mean, this is do or die stuff. But they found the Kalapuya and the Chinook Indians in terrible distress of malaria and smallpox and measles. Their population is just getting decimated. And so they're trying to help these people. Jason Lee was a doctor. Uh, he said that he f- they found the most desperate and degraded people he had ever seen um, in the native tribes that lived along the Willamette and on the coast. So they built a hospital, they built a school over the next couple of years, and they asked for reinforcements from the mission board back in New York, and they sent a group of 10 or 12 people on the ship all the way down around South America, out to Hawaii, and then back to the coast, and there was... Uh, three single women in the group, girls in their 20s who had signed up to give their life away and leave America and go be missionaries, marry whatever man they found and live for Jesus. One of them was Anna Pittman, and she and Jason Lee were married in about three weeks. Uh, A woman doesn't stay single long in the wilderness where there's a whole bunch of men and very few single girls. Anyway, The next year, even more reinforcements came, and now we have farmers and loggers and people to do the work while the school teachers and the clergy do the preaching and the teaching. And and by um, 1839, we have 40 adults and 50 kids living at the Willamette Mission in this outpost in total middle of nowhere. It's 60 miles to go get gunpowder or flour. They're living in the absolute wilderness amongst these native tribes that have absolutely nothing. They're true missionaries. Amongst that group that came is the future first governor and the first supreme judge of Oregon once we became a state. Eventually, they built enough buildings and had enough farmland cleared and things and enough people that they could spread out and they planted other missions. They built the Waskapam Mission, which is became the Dalles. They built the Whitman Mission outside of Walla Walla. They built the Nisqually Mission outside of Tacoma. They built the Clatsop Mission outside of Astoria. They built the Willamette Falls Mission, which became Oregon City. And they built the Umpqua Mission, which became Roseburg. Probably know a few of those places. They ministered to the Kalapuyas, the Cayuse, the Chehalis, the Walla Walla, the Iroquois, the Shastas, the Tillamooks, Klickitats, Umpquas, Chinooks, and even Hawaiians came to the school. Many on the Methodist mission board were telling Jason Lee and his people, you need to civilize those people before you convert them to Christianity. Civilizing meaning make them cut their hair and learn English and wear Western style clothes and so on. Jason Lee was one of the very few. Mostly that is what happened, and it's a, it's a tragedy. But Jason Lee was one of the very few. He said, no, we will evangelize them like they are, and we're not there to make them white Americans. They're Oregon Indians. We're just here to give them Jesus. Amen. That was so rare as to be like that's the only case I ever heard. Like wherever missionaries went, in Africa or South America or wherever, they always pretty much made the natives convert to Western ways. and That wasn't Jason Lee's strategy. Many of the natives were dying of smallpox and measles. There are people today who want to accuse that as being an immoral thing, but those people are just showing how ignorant they are because there is absolutely no way that that could have stayed apart. Um, once people made contact, those diseases were going to spread. It's just what happens, but there's still people who think we can control viruses today and they're fools. 
there are also many white Americans in Oregon. Again, Oregon's not part of America at the point we're talking about. There are many white Americans who died of the same diseases and other causes. Anna Lee uh, immediately got pregnant, gave birth to a son, and they both died the next day. Jason lost his uh, wife and first son after having only been married a year. Marcus and Narcissa Whitman were murdered along with 11 other people at their mission base outside of Walla Walla. It's just the world as it was and as it is still is today. In 1840, the Oregon Trail began to flow traffic because once the word got out about the climate and the weather and the soil, and people began to want to go there. Um, again, Americans, but they're leaving the United States when they come to Oregon. 1840, the Oregon Trail begins to flow. 1843 is when it really cranked up. So people began to flock, and we needed a government. So in 1840, Jason Lee convenes meetings at Shampooey, which is now just this little trading post state park, but it was originally the uh, provisional capital of Oregon. Anyway, they convene a meeting to, to form a government and ask the United States if it will adopt Oregon as its territory. So the first government of Oregon was founded by these missionaries. They divided it into four states, Yamhill, Tuolity, Clackamas, and Shampooey. Notice it's all of Oregon, Washington, all of Idaho, some of Montana, Wyoming. That's the four states they proposed the territory be divided into. Uh, the rest is history. You know, you know what states it is now. But in 1848, Oregon Territory was adopted by the United States and given a government, and it was led by the men from the Willamette Mission. They built a school called the Oregon Institute that became Willamette University in 1853, in 1859, Oregon is separated from what is now Washington, Idaho. We became our own state. And the first governor, Abernathy, 25 years earlier, was one of the original missionaries in the Willamette Mission. Every state is allowed two statues in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. It's called the Hall of Statuary, and you get to honor two notable people from your state. Jason Lee is one of the two that Oregon has in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. So you know I'm not here to give you a history lesson, even one as fun and cool as that. I'm not here to talk to you about um, frontiersmen or even frontier missions. I'm here to talk to you about what Jesus is doing now. But I want to I say this. Oregon was settled originally by Christians at the invitation of the Nez Perce. You with me? You won't get that in your history books because the revisionist historians like to just talk about, oh, they came for land and resources and they stole the land from the native people. And there was a lot of that, but that's not how it started originally. Oregon was evangelized by missionaries at the call of a Native American preacher. You need to go to Oregon and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people that are lost. Oregon's first permanent American residents came because they'd been touched by God in revival. Oregon was settled by people who gave their lives to leave the comfort and safety of the United States and move to the dangerous and isolated wilderness of the West for the name of Jesus and love for desperate people. Oregon was seated with the blood of martyrs who gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the fathers and mothers of Oregon, folks. When I say Oregon now, I mean Oregon greater, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, British Columbia, it's all Oregon. This is the founding of it. 
Oregon was first governed by Christian men who had been missionaries in their younger years. There's been lots of sin and pain and betrayal since then. I am not in any way painting this Christian utopian picture of Oregon history, okay? I, I get it, all right? There's been lots and lots of sin and wickedness since then. There were people that came and tried to make and succeeded for a little while in making Portland a whites-only city. But that's not who the original settlers were. There was the be total betrayal of the Nez Perce in Wallowa Valley. And there's the reprehensible treatment of the Chinese that came to build railroad and mine and earn a living here and send their money back to their families in China and they were treated wickedly. But that's not who the original founders and fathers and mothers of Oregon is. So there's plenty of greed, plenty of sin, plenty of wickedness to go around. But my, my, just my point is that Jesus was here first, before all that. Oregon was founded by people who came here in the name of Jesus Christ. And that only happened about four other places. I mean, Pennsylvania was founded as a Quaker colony. Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony. And you all know about the pilgrims coming to Massachusetts. And then they settled Connecticut and Rhode Island. But none of the other states were settled as a mission. Oregon, greater Oregon, meaning including Washington and Idaho and British Columbia... Oregon belongs to Jesus Christ because the people who came here over 200 years ago, originally, lots of scoundrels followed. I mean, there was lots of selfishness and profiteering and land ripoffs, and I'm not saying it was this Christian utopia, but I'm saying the people who came here, they came in Jesus' name, and it was those people and that place where the government of Oregon was established. What did Jesus have in mind? I don't know. But I, I know this, that Oregon is holy ground. In a way that Wyoming and Utah are not. Oregon is holy ground. Because just like the pilgrims before they signed the Mayflower Compact and got off the ship and they dedicated their colony to Jesus, the first four men and then eventually 40 men and women and 50 kids, they dedicated their lives and their work to the salvation of the gospel of Jesus and they came here and established Oregon. Government was established in the name of Jesus. I think that's significant. I think it's very significant that this is our history, that our fathers and mothers who planted, I know the land and the native people were here, but what we call Oregon and the government of Oregon was not here. That was established in the name of Jesus Christ. So now let's fast forward 200 years, and we now have the hell holes named Portland and Seattle. We have heroin and acid are legal. Theft is now legal in Seattle. You have no right to private property. That's one of the original Ten Commandments, folks. That isn't just a stupid idea. It's a blasphemous idea. I mean it. God is in favor of private property. Do not steal. And this summer, May and June, I was so distressed about what was going on. We made world news for our sin for the wickedness and lawlessness that happened in Seattle and Portland. 
this summer. And of course, Oregon is the least church state in the nation. The, the per capita percentage LGBTQ population in Seattle and Portland is higher than San Francisco. Do you remember the story of uh, Joshua and Caleb taking the promised land? And Caleb at 80 years old says, I'm just as young and strong as I was when I was 40. I want my mountain. Give me my mountain. How many remember? Give me my mountain. All right. What was at the top of the mountain that Caleb wanted? Giants. Yes. What's at the top of the mountain Caleb wants? Giants. Why do the giants live there? I told you this several years ago. Why does a giant pick that hill to live on? Because it's the best place. Right? If you're 12 foot tall and all your kids and grandkids are 12 foot tall and you have 8 foot long swords, you can live wherever you want. And so we, we've got the description of the land that Caleb wanted and how well it's watered and how it lies and, and it's this beautiful piece of land and it's full of giants because giants live wherever they darn well please. Right? Hello? Why is Oregon and Washington full of demons? Because it's holy ground. Why do the giants live in Oregon and Washington? Because this is the best place. And I don't mean physical land. I mean there is some, there's an anointing here. God has big plans. The blood of the martyrs is in our soil. I know there's missionary blood in every soil, in every country, in every state in the nation. I get that. I get, but Oregon was founded in the name of Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. Why did the giants come to live in Oregon and Washington? Because it's holy ground. We belong to Jesus. Come on, we were settled here, established. I know that the land was here and that there were native tribes here, but what we call Oregon, the government and the institution that is Oregon, was settled in the name of Jesus. On, on purpose, people gave their lives to leave America and come to the wilderness knowing there were single women, there were single men, and there were couples and families with kids two and three years old, and they put them on a ship to go down around South America and out to Hawaii and back to the Oregon coast, and then 60 miles up the Willamette, knowing we'll never see our family again, we will never come back, and probably very good chance that a large number of us will die. But Jesus is worth it. That's why Oregon exists as it does today. Government of Oregon came out of the Lamb Mission directly. So what if the reason that Oregon is the least church state in the nation? Sexual perversion is instituted by law where a 13-year-old can have an abortion or her organs cut out without her parents knowing. Wickedness that makes the rest of the world tremble. What if the reason that all those demons have camped out here is because this is the best place? Because God has big plans. What if Antifa and BLM become the end time apostolic army of harvesters? Because there's a generation out there that does not trust us. They don't care what we have to say. They've been so thoroughly lied to that we are Stone Age kooks. That they will not listen. But when the real Jesus meets real people on the road and rewrites their life, and those people can come to the rest of the world and say, hey, we were one of you. We're not the goody-two-shoes religious folks. We were one of you, and we met the real Jesus in person. 
Let's make this a real sermon and actually have a Bible verse. It happened before. It happened before. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he found me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I'm a blasphemer. This is the Apostle Paul talking. I'm a blasphemer. I'm a persecutor. He was a murderer. An insolent man. The word means violently arrogant. Violently arrogant. That describes the people on the streets in Portland shining lasers in the eyes of the cops and throwing frozen water bottles at them and cursing and swearing and declaring their independence. And They're violently arrogant. Paul says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. I didn't know what I was doing. He's one of the most educated people in the world at the time. But he's spiritually blind. He doesn't know what he's doing. Jesus had mercy on me. Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's an eternal statement, folks. That's not about just the Roman soldiers. That's an eternal statement. Everyone who doesn't know what they're doing is forgiven. Well, I know that there are ringleaders in Antifa and BLM and the LGBT crowd that God will have to judge forever in eternal hell. Most of the people in those groups have been lied to. Their minds have been taken over by witchcraft. They've been told lies. They've been taught to hate. They've been, nothing they believe is true. And we know it. But they don't. So they're not guilty. God got a hold of this insolent, murderous man and put him on his face, put his nose in the dirt and said, Hey! I'm Jesus. Stop fighting me. What if Jesus is going to show up and put those people's nose in the pavement and he's going to birth them all over again and he's going to fill them with Holy Spirit and fire. And those people, they've already proved they will lay their life on the line. They don't, they don't care about anything other than what they believe in and what they're working for. And if Jesus can get a hold of them, they'll do way better than y'all are doing because y'all have other priorities. Now, those people have absolutely nothing to lose and nothing to give up. There are a few people who know what they're doing. The organizers of these riots, the organizers pushing for defund the police and let's legalize theft and let's legalize drugs. But most people are being lied to. They really just don't know what's going on. And they've been filled with hate They've been filled with propaganda. They've been filled with sin and addiction and brokenness that has never existed on this scale in world history. I have become obsessed with this idea that Jesus has big plans for Oregon. And I mean, I mean Oregon and Washington. I mean the, the left coast that is known globally for its insanity. Jesus is going to turn it around. Continuing the scripture. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul meant it. He said, I was the worst sinner ever. Well, we're living in the most sinful generation in world history. And we are living in the state and our neighbor on both sides, that embraces it on purpose, institutes it, legislates it. We are the chief of sinners, folks. 
globally in world history. We are the chiefs of sinners. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Paul two times says, I obtained mercy because I was stupid and because Jesus wants to show that no matter how bad I am, he can forgive me and he can change my life. How many of you are willing to believe that the idiocy that's going on in the world around us, Jesus can actually overcome it? And I don't mean through the legal system. I don't mean because President Trump saves us. I don't mean because the Supreme Court steps in. I mean because revival happens. And Oregon leads the way. The street people of Seattle and Portland in their tents on the freeway shoulder shooting up heroin meet Jesus in person. The thousands of transgendered teenagers who've run away and gotten addicted and cut their organs off will stand up and say, we were lied to. We have ruined everything, but Jesus will fix it. If that happens, the world will pay attention. What if the giants are camped out here because this is holy ground from the beginning? What if? What if? I've now lived in Oregon for three years longer than I lived in Missouri. It's my adopted home state, and I love it, and I don't have any plans to ever leave. We'll see what God does. But I, I have never loved Oregon like I have since this summer. I have become obsessed with praying for the people that I, in May and June I was hating. Like, you're ruining it all. You're idiots, and I hope you all die. And Jesus says, well, what if I don't kill them? What if I turn the Saul's into Paul's? What if I take the insolent people, the ignorant, violently arrogant people that you see on the news every night, and I turn them into my apostolic army that harvests the earth? So in September, Will and I went to Willamette State Park, uh, Willamette Mission, and we prayed under a gigantic walnut tree across the river from the actual cabin site. You can't go to the actual site, but we went there. We got interrupted by a bunch of people coming and going, but we prayed for a while, and I prayed. I said, Lord, you're outside of time. You're just as much present with Jason Lee right here as you are with Will and I, and you know what they prayed, and you know why they came, and you know their thoughts, and you know their prayers, and you know the blood, sweat, and tears they gave, and you know the decision that they had to make back in New York to give it all up. And move to the wilderness knowing we'll never get home and most of us will die. And you know the sacrifice, the lives they laid on the altar. Answer their prayers, God. Give them a harvest for what they prayed. Give us Oregon. So I wore this shirt on purpose today. It's my Christmas present to myself. Some of you might recognize this as the Cascadia flag. The leftists in Portland use it a lot. You'll see it at all sorts of sports events and stuff and LGBT parades and stuff. But... It has nothing to do with any of that. It is a regional flag that was originally intended to be, just represent the region that they call Cascadia, but it exactly corresponds to Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and British Columbia. And when President Trump, back in the summer, said we have an anarchist jurisdiction, there was the CHAZ, or the CHOP in Seattle, but he was referring to Portland, 
and there were when the whole fight about the federal troops and the mayor of Portland and all that stuff. He said, we have an anarchist jurisdiction. They made this the flag of their anarchist jurisdiction, and they took that label proudly to fight the president. Well, I bought this shirt because, and I will wear it a lot, because I, I have Oregon and Washington on my heart. Every night I'm praying for salvation for Oregon. All day long. If my mind is not occupied, just especially the last couple of weeks, but, but the last few months, I'm, I'm praying for real revival and salvation for Oregon. And by Oregon, I mean Washington, Idaho, British Columbia, whatever, the, 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 the Oregon that was founded in the name of Jesus. And I want to pray with you. Will you join me? You believe this? Am I, am I a lunatic? You really think Oregon become the most righteous, sensible, sane state, cleanest? Okay. All right. Oh, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We bless your holy name, Lord. Lord, thank you for the heritage that we have in our fathers and mothers in Oregon. Thank you for what you did here, that Oregon was established in Jesus' name, and that we are living in holy ground. That this government that became this state was established for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the relief of the suffering of the people that lived here. Thank you for the men and women that gave their blood, sweat, and tears and their prayers and their vision, that laid their lives on the altar to come and preach Jesus Christ at the invitation of the people who didn't know him, but saw that the people who did had something that they needed. Thank you for your book of instruction. Thank you for teaching us the ways to please the great spirit. We too want to live in the land where you live forever. Lord, we repent of the sins of our past, the betrayals and the theft, and the racism, the distrust and hatred that developed. But before all of that, you were here. You were here. And you had a purpose. And you established something. And there are prayers in the air and blood, sweat, and tears in the ground. You seeded this land with the blood of your people. Bonhoeffer says is the seed of the church. Lord, we ask for a harvest. Beginning with the request of the Nez Perce. To invite you in to their land. If they wanted to know you. We ask for a harvest of salvation. Jesus, come and do your thing. Raise the dead, wake the sleeper, bind the brokenhearted, set free the captive, release the prisoner, deliver the demonized, restore families, fathers to children and children to fathers. Lord, it's always your way to take the least and make them the greatest, to take the last and make them first. So here we are, Lord, we are the least, we're the most wicked people in our country, legalizing sin, in fact, legislating sin, embracing wickedness. Lord, you said, woe to those who put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And we are that people, Lord. We ask for mercy. We ask that you forgive those who don't know what they're doing. I would ask you to remove the wicked shepherds in the church and in the government, in the schools, 
those who do know what they're doing. Remove them, Lord, and stop their witchcraft. The evil ideas that they're putting in our kids, the lies that they're telling them, that they can have sexual freedom, that they can take drugs and it won't hurt them, that they can have abortions and there won't be any bad consequences. Lord, we're so full of lies, so lost, families so broken, kids growing up without dads who also grew up without dads, who also grew up without dads. Lord, we need our families restored and forgiven. Lord, we are beyond any salvation. We just sang, I'm not enough unless you come. Lord, we are not enough unless you come. There is no hope of salvation for us as a culture, as a people, as a state, as a nation. There is absolutely no hope. We don't put our hope in a president or an election or a court. We put our hope in you. Lord, we need you. Lord, we ask you to remember the people in the beginning. You know their prayers. You know what they preached. You know what they prayed. You know what they believed. You know what they caught, what they paid. And we join our lives with theirs for your gospel. And we say, give us Oregon, Lord. May the Lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Lord, would you, would you do that? Would you take the lowest of the low, the street people and the addicts and those that are full of hate and lawlessness, and violent ignorance and violent pride and would you make them the display of your graciousness would you show your power to turn around the worst lives to set free the most bound people your power of truth to break off the lies your power of freedom to break off their addiction your power of love to forgive and restore would we bless our neighbors and our friends, and our fellows in Oregon, we bless them in Jesus' name. We say Jesus is king, and we say the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than all of the lies that the world tells. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Raise up the dry bones, Lord, into your army. Give them hearts of flesh and give them the breath of God. Lord, do something in our state, in our nation, that will make our jaws drop. That if you told us now, we would not believe it's possible. You can turn this around. You can save the unsavable, you can forgive the unforgivable, you can love the unlovable. And you command us to do so as well. Lord, we can't save Oregon, but we have a neighbor across the street, and we have a coworker we're going to see tomorrow. Give us wisdom, give us boldness, give us love to do your work, to share your good news, to pray in faith, to not fight and be angry and be those that spread blame and opposition and get sucked up into politics, but to live for your kingdom and only your kingdom, because you are the only answer. We want what you want. Will we dare to believe? that we are not past salvation. We praise you, we bless you, we love you, Lord. Thank you for your great power and your great love. Thank you for the inheritance that we have in this state. In Jesus' name, amen.